Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. first full day together. I have these moments where I'm in aristocratic France. Warm baguettes just show up. Then I'm in a little cottage like this and I'm in Kyoto. And then I have moments uh, like in the next building where I feel like I'm in Sri Lanka. Is anybody else having this experience? It's just like, where are we? Um, my favorite part so far is the sounds. How beautiful sounds. So, uh, the door to intimacy is always open. Uh, intimate with ourselves. But some of us, uh, we have so many walls up, so many constructions. Maybe you don't think of them as uh, saboteurs of intimacy, but actually, uh, when you sit there and your mind becomes compulsive. You seen this yet? In the Heart Sutra, this is called a wall of the mind. Remember we chanted that this morning? Walls of the mind. And the Heart Sutra is actually a, a text about uh, letting go of fear. And so that, that line is, uh, without walls of the mind and therefore no fear. Uh, some of us, uh, when we come into an environment like this, we're in high school again or whatever it's called in your country. And uh, we like certain people, don't like certain people. We wonder if they like us. And then uh, it's hard to open up to the experience of Sangha because uh, we're just in our theories about our reality. And I see it in my relationship with so many of you it takes so many years uh, for trust to build so we can have an intimate connection with each other. If we can't discern the Dharma in our relationships, we can't discern it anywhere. <laughs> 
So there's no difference between these teachings and how they come alive uh, in our relationships. And um, I was thinking when we were talking about the cushions uh, last night, but, uh, the word for intimacy in Japanese is mitsu, which uh, comes from the description of cotton batten inside a cushion. Uh, if you opened up this cushion and you took out the cotton batten, all the pieces are so close to each other. Not one, not two. So this is how we can practice together. To be intimate with our breathing, to be intimate with the sounds and our environment, Not to be two with it, not to be one with it. Just to actually be present with our experience. And when you're totally present with your experience, you can't see it. Because there's no you there to see it. There's just the experience happening. Like with our breathing. I say feel your breathing. And uh, if you're a visual person, you'll just be watching your breathing. But when you feel your breathing, if you keep staying with it, the breath becomes gentler and gentler, and then there's just breathing happening. That's what I say when I say trust that your body knows how to breathe. It's allowing the breath to happen until it's not you that's doing the breathing. But if there's a lot of uh, psychological and emotional walls up, it's very hard to trust that your body can just breathe. Can you feel that? As soon as I say notice your breathing, you start messing with it. <laughs> uh, I was uh, very intimate when I was uh, young with a record called uh, The Shape of Jazz to Come. It came out in 1959 by a saxophone player named Ornette Coleman. And uh, he died last Thursday. I was 85 years old. He was a really interesting guy. He, uh, when he was young, he, he didn't have a lot of money and was attracted to toy instruments. So when he found one of his first uh, alto saxophones, it was uh, built by a company that had gone out of business. In other words, you could never buy parts for it. And he nursed this uh, plastic saxophone. And, uh, and as he became famous, he was really convinced that uh, musicians shouldn't play expensive instruments. So he played this plastic saxophone most of his life. <laughs> and different plastic saxophones. Anyways, uh, I knew this record. Like every, There is one song on the record called Lonely Woman, which like I know every note. So anyways, I've been thinking about him a lot this week. And I was reading an obituary. And uh, uh, in the obituary, they're talking about it, the last interview he did. And uh, in the last interview he did, uh, this is the last line of the interview. He says... Um, I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. I just want to be as human as I can get. Isn't that beautiful? I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody. Most of us in this room, we think, we're not trying to prove something to somebody. Most of you who I know. But then you start looking internally at all the characters that populate our psyche. 
And because we're relational beings, we've internalized all these relationships. There's a very big portion of our mental pie and our physical pie that's made up of other people who are still trying to impress. I can see it in the bowing. You know, when you learn bowing, it's always like a fine balance. How do you explore this form and also totally be yourself? How do you walk and just be yourself and also be part of this larger group? So how do we become more human, as human as we can get? To me, this is more interesting than fantasies of enlightenment. How can we become as human as we can get? So if you practice this practice that we're doing, um, your life will get harder. You can leave now. Um, because um, you start to feel more suffering, more deeply, especially the suffering of other people, especially ecological suffering. And practice also makes life way easier because when you feel the depth of suffering, yours and others' suffering, uh, you have more equanimity. So actually you, you can uh, take it in with your whole body. And you can't divorce these two things. Our mind is a mess. <laughs> the world is a mess. Um, our economic model is killing living beings at an alarming rate. And also, uh, the world is stunning. And the river is stunning. And warm baguettes show up at breakfast time. And you're on a retreat where there's coffee. <laughs> This is a new thing. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to have a break from studying sutras or jazz records. And so I thought the theme for the next uh, week would be a text I've always wanted to look at. It's hardly a text, actually. It's just a series of images uh, called the Ten Oxherding Pictures. And um, the Ten Oxherding Pictures uh, come from uh, rural China in the 12th century. And originally, there were just five. And um, the interesting thing about the original is that in the original painting, there were five, and the ox that was seen in every painting uh, got lighter and lighter and lighter until in the last painting there was nothing there. Um, I think nowadays if you did a painting that got whiter and whiter it wouldn't be as popular. Um, and uh, in the tantric Mahamudra tradition there's something that's very similar to the ten ox herding pictures some of you may have seen which uh, there's a series of nine pictures, and instead of the mind being an ox, it's either an elephant or a monkey, which works just as well. <laughs> um, so uh, the first uh, stage um, 
and, and the translation that I'm going to work with. So, so in every in every uh, drawing, and I'm going to talk more about the history as the week goes on. But in every drawing, there's uh, some calligraphy in the corner, which is a poem. So the poems and the drawings have always been together as one thing. But the drawings became more famous in the West because nobody knew what the poem said. Um, but actually, I find the poems equally as uh, revealing as the drawings. So at the end of every talk, um, I'll pin this up in the room, in, in, the, in the hallway, in the main building, and you can uh, look at the, the drawing and the poem uh, next to each other. Uh, this translation of this version is by uh, someone I know named Kaz Tanahashi, whose work I really love, who's a translator. Um, so uh, this is the first image, which you probably can't see, uh, but I'll put it up later. And it's uh, someone under uh, blowing leaves um, searching for an ox. And you know, uh, Zen practice, Chan practice, has its roots in agriculture. So um, a lot of the Buddha's metaphors were uh, a little bit aristocratic, you know, and a lot of the early Chinese Chan metaphors are more related to agriculture. Um, so there's a lot of talk about rivers and mills and um, weirs and uh, bamboo and ox, because an ox was something everybody had in order to do good agriculture. An ox, I always say, in America is the equivalent of a pickup truck. Um, and it's a really good metaphor for your mind. Because on the one hand, your mind is very utilitarian, you need it to do things. And on the other hand, our mind is very much like an animal. You know, uh, When you look into the eyes of an animal, you realize you can't know it. And hopefully that relates to people also. And there's an aspect of our mind that we know, and there's an aspect of our mind we can't know. And the mind we can't know is the mind we're interested in exploring in meditative practice. So the first poem goes like this. Uh, Vigorously, cutting a path through the brambles, you search for the ox. Wide rivers, eternal mountains, the path seems endless. With your strength depleted and the mind exhausted, you can't find it. There's only the gentle rustle of maple leaves and the bird's evening song. Isn't that nice? You feel like there's a path you start searching for it, you can't find it. But once you're exhausted, what do you find? The evening song of the birds. Some trace. When I was young, I always wondered uh, how anybody can go on living. You make meaning and then whatever meaning you make uh, is temporary. And then it has to get replaced by some other kind of meaning. And it re it's just a lot like Camus' Sisyphus. You know, you're rolling the boulder up the hill and it just rolls back again. And I don't know, maybe that's why a lot of us come to practice. 
you've spent thousands of dollars on psychotherapy. It's helped you understand a lot of patterns that uh, you really need in order to have good functioning relationships and boundaries and so on. And then also, um, just because we can know certain patterns or constellations doesn't necessarily mean we know how to actually drop them. So we're still left with this kind of existential um, dissatisfaction. And part of this dissatisfaction, according to the Buddha, is um, that we have a tremendous investment in our identity. In Latin, the word identity means uh, to stay the same. So we have this tremendous investment in um, knowing what we know and staying invested in what we know, in, in, in having a position. So that's why when we talk about self-knowledge or knowing yourself, it's almost like that's a symptom masquerading as a cure. We want to know ourselves, but every time we go and find out who we are, we end up just with a new narrative that eventually becomes a bad narrative because it gets outdated. So what do we rely on? That's what this first, this first image is all about. So when you uh, don't have much practice uh, under your belt, when you sit down to meditate, your mind is a mess. Is anybody seeing this? And uh, then um, <clears throat> we just get blown around. We just get blown around by the experience. Um, but then sometimes, and I'm talking to those of you who have lots of practice, uh, you can also get convinced in your practice too that there's some groundedness. And sometimes we can get a little lazy in our practice. And that's why it's nice for those of you who have a lot of practice who are on this retreat um, to sometimes learn new forms or have a new job or, or, or enter the practice from another door. To just notice where we kind of like rest in our practice position where we're not growing. Um, I had this experience uh, because uh, um, I've talked many times about uh, depression in my life. And uh, um, when I was in my uh, 20s, my mother always said to me, when you get older, it's going to happen at the end of your 30s. Uh, when you get depressed, it's going to be worse. And I said, that's a terrible thing to say. I have a really serious practice. I meditate every day. I have amazing friends. I eat really good. Um, I exercise. Uh, I, I study. 
I do everything. She's like, oh, that's great that you do all those things. She's like, I play tennis, but it doesn't matter. You'll see. And it has nothing to do with you. It's just genetics. It's just genetics. So, uh, so I always thought my mom should do psychotherapy. <laughs> and I would tell her all the time, you should do some psychotherapy. And she would always say, uh, because everyone in her, so my mom has, there's five siblings. So it's a big family. And every single one of them uh, has depression that got worse when they hit their 30s. <laughs> every one of them. Um, and uh, uh, I've always just thought that's because they don't, you know, they don't have enough inner life. You know? So anyways, then I turned 40 and it happened to me. I, my depression was way worse than it's ever been. And I thought to myself, holy shit, like... I have a practice, like I'm supposed to be able to work with this, you know. And, um, and then I felt like I was in the first ox herding picture. So when I see this first image, I think of that time, which was over, uh, just over a year ago, where I thought, oh my God, all these skills that I have, all the support that I have, it, it's not working, it's not helping. But even so, even so, there is the sound of the maple leaves. And this was the strangest thing for me about going through this really rough time in my mind. And I've been practicing sitting like more than half my life. Which is that there were these moments in the day that were absolutely beautiful. Totally beautiful. I remember one day just being so down that I just didn't get out of bed. And then uh, at dinner time... Uh, I was sitting at the table and my son came over and sat on my lap and peed in his diaper. And the warmth of the pee in the diaper was like the most beautiful feeling. And then I looked at the window and there was a reflection of the moon. And I mean, it was just a beautiful moon. So all this is to say that even if you don't trust your mind, which, and for those of you who are confident, oh, I've got a great practice, I really trust my mind, there are going to be times where you don't. The place I see it most with students is when they have uh, breakups. I think for most people, their mental health is related to, um, well, everybody thinks it's related to gluten, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I actually think most of our mental health is related to... Um, the stability of our relationships. And you see that, you know, someone's in a loving relationship and, and, and the, per the person they love passes away or they get dumped or betrayed or something, you know, or fall out of love. And they're so unstable, you know. And you can't just say to them, hey, you have a practice. They actually have to enter the practice through the place of being a disaster. See? So this is another way of thinking about this first ox herding picture. How do you actually become intimate with what's really going on in your life? Um, some of you know that usually when I pick a text to study, we don't finish it. So I told Sophia that we're going to do two pictures a day <laughs> to finish it. She never told me if that was a good idea, but we're going to... So, so the first image is searching for the ox. Did everybody catch that? And I'll just read that poem one more time. 
Vigorously cutting a path through the brambles, you search for the ox. You want to find the ox. Wide rivers, eternal mountains, the path seems endless. With strength depleted and a mind exhausted, you can't find it. There's only the gentle rustle of maple leaves and the bird's evening song. Then image two. Um, finding traces of the ox. So here, there's a, a young, well, let's just say a girl, and um, she's got her hand out like this, looking for the ox. Along the river, deep in the forest, you find the traces. Leaving behind the fragrant grasses, you study the subtle signs. The track suddenly as clear as the distant sky lead you into the endless mountains. There's no place to hide. It's a peculiar ending, which we'll, we'll get to. So, um, when we're sitting, I'm wanting you to treat the sitting practice as a physical practice, as an embodied practice. So we're feeling our breathing, and the ears are open to sounds. And I always think that the first stage of practice on a retreat, or just generally in the progression of your path, should really begin in this physical way. So how can you sit with stability, while at the same time, let sensations and sounds just come to you, just touch you, and pass through? Because I feel like if you can't start to feel that at a physical level, then later on, when you're working with uh, uh, more turbulent emotions, uh, it's harder, actually, to just uh, give space for things to arise and pass away if you can't do that at a really in, in a really embodied way. Does that make sense to you? Can you yeah. So as you pay attention, it's really important to notice the, the um, attitude you have when things are arising. So oftentimes there's an attitude of uh, hope, like, I hope this will go away. Or reluctance, like, I'm not sure if I can really... This is day one? How many days did I pay for this? <laughs> Another attitude that's really common is, is um, what I think of as the sledgehammer attitude, which is coming down really hard on something. Like, oh, that shouldn't be here. Uh, one that I see very common in experienced students is the attitude of not getting too close to the experience. Not getting intimate with the experience. And that happens a lot when, um, and some of you have heard me talk about this a lot before, but when, when I first started practicing, the language that was used in meditative practice was all about a witnessing, observing experience. So sometimes with things like anxiety or pain, it's really helpful to start with um, imagining when you're sitting that you're in a theater 20 rows back just watching the experience happen. Mm -hmm. 
But sometimes uh, when you only practice that way, you don't get very close actually to the experience and it becomes a little bit disembodied. A little bit disembodied. And I see that a lot in students. And I'm going to put this in brackets because it might upset people, but I see this a lot in young men. Which is, I'm only going to work on establishing the stability of awareness so I can just keep watching and watching. And eventually you just turn into cardboard. Anyone can have this, but it, it does seem to be a young man's problem. Or maybe it was just my problem and I project that on other young men. So that's another thing to watch in your attitude is where something's arising and you're like, I'm not going to get too close to that. I'm just going to watch it. Just going to observe. It's like non-committal. Um, another one is the checklist attitude, which is, oh yeah, posture's good, tongue's quiet, eyes are quiet. Um, I'm done. <laughs> We all go through all of these attitudes, right? Mm -hmm. Like today, you've had all of these experiences. <laughs> like, oh yeah, 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 okay. Back to my favorite neuroses. <laughs> and the last one is just being a little bit too uptight. And I'm seeing it a little bit in the walking meditation. Yeah. So in the walking meditation, how to, how to fully be walking. So the foot and the ground are meeting each other at the same time. Foot and the ground are meeting each other at the same time. It, it's not just that your foot's coming down, but the ground is lifting up to meet your foot. If it's just the foot coming down on the ground, then it's all coming from your personality. I'm stepping on the ground, but actually there's something else going on from the other side. It's like when it's dinner in the main building. I'm going to walk to dinner. I'm walking to dinner. Here I am. I'm walking to dinner. But as you're walking to dinner, dinner's walking towards you. Because as you start walking towards the building, the building actually is getting closer. So we need to see it from both sides. Not just always from the personal and the ocular. On both sides. Basho says, you should learn about the pine from the pine, and about bamboo from bamboo. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Usually if you want to learn about bamboo, we Google wiki bamboo. Learn about pine from the pine, and bamboo from the bamboo. So there's a trace of something. How do you find the ox? You get closer to it. Closer to it. How do you learn about the ox of discomfort? You get closer to it. How do you learn about the ox of fear? You get closer to it. 
And how do you get closer to something? You notice how you're aware. And this is what we call mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice is when you switch gears from always paying attention to the content of what's coming up to the subjective experience of noticing. What's the subjective experience of awareness? What's the attitude in your noticing? Perception always has an attitude. It's always conditioned. So the poem... Along the river, deep within the forest, you find traces. Leaving behind the fragrant grasses, you have to leave those behind. The baguettes are really good, but you don't need them. This is why sometimes uh, sitting is so hard for yoga students and dancers. Former dancers. Um, because uh, we're so used to having a certain way of experiencing sensations where we're really into the pleasure of the sensation and if there isn't pleasure then we just like move a different way and we get out of the sensation that's not pleasurable but in sitting we're feeling sensations but we're not doing anything about it maybe the only thing we're doing about it is checking our attitude so we can be closer to sensations without jumping out of them. And that's one way of thinking about leaving behind the fragrant grasses. Usually people translate that as like hedonism. You know, you've got to give up. Well, giving up coffee, that's ridiculous. Forget that. But you have to give up dancing or whatever. Alcohol. But what happens in noticing your attitude is that you start letting go of your reactivity. You start letting go of your reactivity. Second noble truth. And in letting go of your reactivity, uh, you start to notice a resonance between your deeper yearnings, your deeper wisdom, and the teachings. And this is a really important stage. You start to realize uh, practice is real. This is true. This is not just made up. I can actually touch something here. And maybe already in the first day you can feel this. Maybe sometimes you're just like on top. Like, oh, I don't really like this part and I like this part and... The beans are okay, but not three meals a day. Um, you know. But like, no matter what your likes and dislikes, under the surface, there's practice going on. And every once in a while, when you calm down, you can touch that. You can feel that. And you need your breath to do this. So you need your breath to keep calming mental fabrications. I like to imagine that my breathing is like a massage. And the breath is just calming, down-regulating the nervous system. So 
to when you say to yourself, this is hard. I can't do this. Has anyone done this yet? I can't do this. That's not mindfulness. Because that's identifying with the content. I can't do this. But instead we say, what's that like when I say I can't do this? What's the attitude in that? What's the subjective experience of noticing that? And we investigate that. And we don't hold on to it. So if you stay there long enough in this process of reducing reactivity, the ox shows up. You stay there long enough and you start to see the traces of the path. Because what's a path? A path is just what appears in the absence of reactivity. We might think, oh, I'm on a certain Vajrayana path or I'm on the Yoga Sutra path. But actually, the path in the present moment is just the moment that's absent of reactivity. And in any moment that's absent of reactivity, a path opens up. And what do we mean by a path is it's clear. It's unobstructed. We have a choice in how we're going to respond to the situation. Somebody asked Ornette Coleman, um, what kind of dynamics uh, do you want to happen in a band? It's a good question, isn't it? What are the kind of dynamics you want to have happening in your band? He said, uh, I don't want them to follow me. I want them to follow themselves, but be with me. I don't want them to follow me. I want them to follow themselves, but be with me. Isn't that beautiful? There's really like two models for teachers, I think. One model is... um, you are a military sergeant and these are the troops and like everyone has got to be in order and I'm sure many of us have had that experience and another model is the agricultural model where the teacher is a farmer and they're doing their best to try and create the conditions for each crop to come alive So through the week, I'm going to offer lots and lo- Oh, so who am I? I think I'm a mix, I hope. Sometimes I'll kick your ass, I hope. And also sometimes I... Uh, uh, I just really want you to be yourself. That's the punchline of this whole sport. You know. So... Um, practice is going to look different for each one of you. And so it's really important that as you're sitting, you're not wasting your time. I said that last night, I think.
every breath being awake to what's happening in this moment. You go into a daydream, you wake up. Another dream, you wake up. Another dream, you wake up. Because in the daytime, when we're meditating, and you're watching your thoughts, it's all about you. It's all about creating your identity. Have you seen this yet? Building the identity of me. And then, when you go to sleep at night, and you dream, you're also the main character of your dream. And there's usually two perspectives in the dream. Either you're the main character in the experience, or you're behind yourself or up above, watching yourself have the experience. But in every dream, it's always us as the main character. And the only two times that changes is when you're falling asleep. So in the space of falling asleep, there's a suspension of the ego. But it also happens in meditation practice. In meditative practice, when you keep decentering from what's arising, not falling for the content, paying attention to the way you're paying attention, something happens where um, the self-making mechanism is suspended. And that's the path. That's when you're on the path. And you're not seeking anymore. So maybe the message of the first two ox herding pictures is how to stop seeking. You become a student, a contemplative student, when you're not seeking anymore. That's the bodhisattva path. So I want to end today with a story uh, from the 9th century of uh, Kyosei. And um, uh, there's a few different versions of this story, but um, the one I'm going to tell is um, related to this land here, actually, which is um, Kyosei went to his teacher and said, uh, when I first entered this monastery, uh, you told me that you would teach me how to enter the practice. And the teacher says, uh, yep, I did. And Kyosei says, uh, I haven't seen how to get in. You can stop there, actually. That is such a beautiful question. Could any of us be humble enough to actually finally go, you know what? Like, okay, I've done the stress reduction part, but like, how do I really get in? It's such a good question. So the teacher says, do you hear the sound of the water coming over the weir? You can almost hear it from here. Do you hear the sound of the water coming over the weir? And Kyosei says, a yes. And the teacher says, enter there. <laughs> so I would say, do you hear the sound in the bamboo? Enter there. Enter here. 
You feeling uncomfortable in your back? Enter there. Is the mind so busy? Just enter there. So this is what makes this practice different. This practice we're doing is we're not practicing to get anywhere. See? The whole fruition of our practice is just this moment. And you can't hold on to it. Can't hold on to it. But then there's this peculiar ending to this poem, which is, um, yeah, you start to see that there is a path to the endless mountains, but uh, don't hide. So the whole time it's been the ox is hiding, right? The ox is hiding. But now we're told, hey, you, don't hide. So when you're caught up in all of the planning about your future, how many of you, let's have a show of hand, are like more in the future when you're sitting? And how many of you are more in the past? Well, some of you didn't even put up your hands. Some of you are just not here at all. (laughs) But that's a good thing to pay attention to, actually. So imagine Kyosei, imagine this student, like, he just wants to get it right. What sutra should I study? Maybe that's what his question was, or... Like, what technique should I use? What's the best technique? I always think, like, in meditation interviews, like, with many students, like, the number one thing people want to talk about when they talk about meditation technique is how to get what they want. (laughs) It's the number one thing. I'm not getting exactly what I want. How do I get what I want? But there's just one place to enter. And you can't enter it if you're hiding. So when you're here with other people, be open to other people. The dog, the bamboo, the weir. Each one of those is a koan. How do you enter? So thank you very much.